Uh, hello, James. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. If you could see the place where I'm walking and giving this talk from, you'd, you'd chuckle. It's I'm literally in the middle of the woods right now, but it's it's woods with cell reception, so we're all good. You know, I think that's all right. It provides a little bit of ambiance yeah. for what we're about to get into. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually yeah. You perfect. can hear the black flies. You know. <laughs> yeah. Per- yeah. There we go. So that's great. <laughs> so Miles Howard, you know, you're out here walking about (laughs) in the woods. Uh, And I appreciate you calling in uh, because you came to us with a story here at The Outline recently. Uh, What was that about? Well, the story that I came in with was about a concept that the city of Boston is exploring as a possible uh, partial fix to our affordable housing problem, which is, uh, it's a little thing called the plug-in house, which is essentially... Uh, a tiny house that you slap together from polyurethane panels and with a hex wrench and uh, put in your backyard, hook up to the utilities, and uh, offer it a low-income tenants. At least that's how the theory goes. The Outline World Dispatch. And... Uh, I came, I came to the outline with this because there are similar initiatives being explored in other cities where the housing market is becoming prohibitively expensive for regular people. And uh, the idea of building uh, tiny houses on unused backyards and uh, other pieces of property is becoming some vogue now. But, uh, but, but no city has really built its initiative around a flagship product like the one that Boston is embracing right now. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to back up a little bit because the first time that yeah. I was introduced to Tiny Homes was through TLC. Don't laugh at me. I'm such a big <laughs> fan um, of Tiny House Hunters. Jessica's been searching for a tiny house in Portland, Oregon that has all of the items on her not-so-tiny wish list. So for folks that have no idea what a tiny home is, like, what are they? Well, the literal, the literal answer to that question is that a tiny house is basically a space generally no larger than uh, a thousand square feet uh, where somebody kind of folds a really ornate lifestyle into. It's a little, you know, it's, it's usually a one or two room dwelling, uh, like a cottage that you could even put on wheels if you want and take it to various places to, you know, live a more mobile existence. It's uh, most of the ones that the tiny houses most of us were introduced to it. Uh, is a really gorgeous little dwelling. It, you know, the, the ones that made the magazine spreads are covered with uh, finished wood, you know, leather, bookshelves full of Hemingway and Didion, recessed lighting, that sort of thing. And it's, wow. uh, and it was the, the timing of it was somewhat interesting too, because the the tiny houses really came into vogue uh, just a few years after the housing market implosion in 2007. And uh, you know, prior to that, you know, as, as a millennial growing up in the uh, 1990s and 2000s, I remember. For a very long time, the sort of pinnacle of uh, status, if you were, uh, you know, dreaming of certain real estate moves, was getting a huge house that was just, you know, uh, opulent to the extremes yep. and incredibly spacious. And the tiny house, in some ways, almost seems like a uh, a rebuttal to that in some sense. Uh, you know, the dream was no longer, uh, you know, owning as much uh, property as possible. It was owning as little as possible and living a life of refined simplicity and elegance and uh Again, mobility. Hmm. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about the Boston Housing Innovation Lab. And um, I'm curious, like, why they're so interested in these tiny homes lately. Well, it was, you know, that was one of the first things that popped into my my mind when I covered the entire thing. Because, you know, the the group that seemed the most excited by far about the plug-in house when it made its debut, uh, they literally built one of these things in City Hall Plaza in Boston for people to come and wander around and kind of imagine in their backyard. And, uh, 
you know, the only group that really seemed very vocally excited about these things were not only city officials, but what I would call the innovation community in Boston, which is to say people who, you know, design and engineer, you know, the latest technology that shape our world the next day. You know, the voices that were curiously absent from the entire thing were uh, people who potentially might live in these things. And, uh, you know, the city of Boston, uh, according, to a, uh, when the, according to the Housing Innovation Lab director whom I spoke with a few days ago, the, the plug-in house has been embraced uh, partially as a means of getting the public more excited and aware of affordable housing initiatives. Uh, mm-hmm. This isn't the first thing that Boston has explored. There's, uh, uh, there's a term called ADU that's very popular in the housing community, which stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. And what that is, is it's basically any sort of space within somebody's home, you know, garage or whatever that can be, that, that's been turned into a separate unit that one tenant can live in. And the tiny house is sort of a, uh, a sexier version of the ADU, for lack hmm. of a better word. And, uh, you know, I think that was one of the things that inspired me to pitch this story was, uh, you know, it didn't seem uh, coincidental that the tiny house of all things was sort of being used as, as the vessel through which to frame this uh, new edition, this new initiative right here, because people are still really into tiny houses. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, I think we all know somebody who, you know, after a few beers, you know, unloads their dream of, uh, you know, <laughs> quitting their job, building one and, you know, moving to the Catskills or something for a year. And, uh, right. Like you know, living I think off the grid ways, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like van life 2.0, you know? And I mean, it's, and this is, and I, it seems like that's the target audience in a way for this whole thing. I mean, anyone who has occasionally embraced that, you know, high concept, uh, dream of downsizing for something sleeker and smaller. Hmm. Um, so how much do these things cost? Like how much do they cost to build? So the plug-in house, uh, currently has an estimated price of about 50 grand and, uh, that covers all the materials right there. Now, you know, some of the bigger questions about how feasible this would be are, uh, zoning practices around Boston and part of getting this whole thing to take off into a full-fledged initiative would be to loosen those laws. But, but 50 grand is the rough price tag, and you know homeowners would have the the option to make modifications that could go upward, that could that could inflate the price a little bit. But yeah, you know that's that sticker price of 50 <laughs> grand is one of the uh, one one of the aspects of a plug-in house that's at the forefront of the whole thing. You know, right? Um, and 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 the thing that I'm like super curious about is like this idea of like, all right, we're building a house for these people, but we have no idea who's going to be moving into them. So how are they testing um, like these homes before they were rolling them out? You know, that's kind of the next big question for Boston, because at this stage, the plug-in house uh, is a conversation starter at this point. And basically the city is looking for people to weigh in about how they feel. And that was uh, partially why I wrote the article as a means of weighing in as somebody not only who has lived in Boston for a long time, but could potentially be among the demographics uh, whom the tiny house might be, whom the plug-in house might be targeted for. You know, I've, uh, every year I've, I've been on the verge of, uh, you know, thinking about whether or not I can afford to stay in Boston as, you know, as a writer, I, I don't, I don't make a six figure salary, but that's quickly becoming a, uh, a near requirement for staying in certain sectors of Boston these days. Mm. Um, the house has been tested partially in China. That was actually, one of the earliest instances there. The the architect who created the house um, uh, sold a, basically a young woman in China who 
uh, had grown up in a courtyard house in Beijing and was on the verge of having to move to the suburbs because of uh, a more affordable prices there, she elected to buy a very early model of the plug-in house and set it up in the old courtyard space in her parents' house there. And that was how she was able to stay locally. And if, and if, you, got, if, and if you went to the plug-in house that was set up in Boston, uh, you would see on the inside, one of the walls was covered with photographs of this Beijing house at use right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that really struck me about it, not only, you know, was it an interesting design concept, but uh, the house was uh, a master class of interior design, too. And you took into account the color of the furniture, the quantity of, the, the quantity of furniture and uh, trappings there. There were, there were no, you know, all the stuff that most of us think about when we imagine our home is it actually looks lived in, you know, the, the piles of magazines, Tupperware containers, mm-hmm. none of that was there. And, uh, you know, I was struck by that because I, on the one hand, I thought how beautiful. And on the other hand, I thought there's no way that the plug-in house would actually look like this if really, you know, proliferated and, and lived in by regular people here. Right. And, and, you know, that's, <laughs> And, and that and that elegance is a huge part of the sales pitch right there. I mean, the walls of this of this of these houses are white as a dry erase board. And you know, imagine raising kids in a little space like that, especially when you're t- teaching them how to use silverware here and there. I mean, <laughs> that could that could that could change quickly. So it's uh, so you know, Beijing was technically a testing ground, but uh, you know, this thing has not been implemented on a mass scale in any city in the U.S. yet. So Boston will be the laboratory if this thing goes forward. Hmm. So, like, the big elephant in the room um, is, like, you know, this seems like a lot of, like, idealism that's occurring. Like, like best case scenario for humanity. Um, but the thing is, is, like, this reminds me a lot about what's happening in transportation right now with uh, Uber and Lyft. And that's this uh, privatization of something that should honestly be handled by the city government. So, like, how are these organizations dancing this line? You know, I'm really glad you mentioned privatization because I think that really illustrates the the, the crux of the issue with, uh, you know, just even the concept of tiny houses as an affordable housing solution. Because, you know, to put it in blunt terms, it's essentially saying to homeowners, well, we can't really figure this out. But here, why don't you build a little house and, you know, make some rent and, you know, do your part in helping to fix the housing crisis here and there. Mm -hmm. And, uh you know, the entire thing is basically predicated upon the goodwill of homeowners. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a cynical view of uh, man's ways when it comes to generosity. But one thing I can tell you about Boston is that uh, yard space is a commodity right there. And, you know, people, I, I, I think if you asked anyone on the street, would you be willing to build a tiny house for low-income tenants in your backyard? Not only might people balk at the idea of using up their yard space like that, but also... You know, at, at the moment, the way this thing is envisioned, uh, there's nothing to necessarily guarantee that the rent that homeowners would charge to live in plug-in houses would be affordable for low-income people these days. Right, right. Um, and my last question here is, uh, so it's digging a little bit further into this, like, this idea of the tiny home. Um, because like you mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, van life or hashtag van life, as it's known like on Instagram. Uh, And if people are, like, unfamiliar with that, it's essentially where fairly well-off people, they live in vans as, like, quote-unquote homeless. Um, They always seem to have quit a job at a design agency or something before jumping in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, lawyers or, you know, very well-money jobs or or even people that say that they drink, uh, quote-unquote, raw water. But essentially it's, like, rainwater, you know? (laughs) It's, like, all these type of things. And... 
And the reason why I'm super curious to talk to you about this is uh, recently you wrote about um, the, fru- the frugal woods and um, how living cheaply is essentially for people that are already well off. So this is all looping back to ask, like, about this craze about tiny homes, um, like this idea of rebranding things that essentially disenfranchised people have been doing for as long as capitalism existed. Like, do you feel like these two, um, like the tiny homes and, you know, van life and raw water and all this stuff, like, do you think like these, these, all these things are related in some kind of way? In in a short answer? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that the general trend of, uh, glamorizing certain aspects of poverty and living uh, very frugally by necessity is something that uh, it kind of comes and goes as a trend in American life in general. Um, I'm not exactly sure why we seem to be seeing such an explosion of it right now. It could be, I think the one thing that might tie this together for me is the sort of idealized dream of simpler living in some ways. You know, one one of the uh, oft-cited inspirations for the tiny house, as most of us know it, was actually Henry David Thoreau's Walden. You know, his whole mm-hmm. idyllic life on the shores of the pond and his little cabin tending to his bean field and occasionally going into town to get cakes. I mean, that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's... it's uh, Sounds again, like a good it, life it, to me. <laughs> yeah, likewise, likewise. I mean, it's... it's uh, <laughs> you know, if I, if I could afford to live that way, I, I, I might well go there. But at the same time... You know, it, it does strike me, uh, the, the idea of simplicity uh, being the governing force behind all this. I mean, we live in incredibly complex times right now on a social political level. And, and I think that, you know, we, 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 we have incredible structural challenges facing us right now, like worsening income inequality, uh, the specter of climate change, uh, you know, I- intense political polarization in most sectors of the country. And, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 sort of urge to tune out of all this in some ways, I think, I think in, in some ways represents a yearning for a more streamlined and unfussy life in some sense. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been there too. I've had my moments where, you know, working as a writer covering issues that, uh, you know, are connected to some of those structural challenges I just mentioned. I've had moments where I want to just detach from the entire thing and go live in seclusion in Vermont for a whole month to recharge right there, which is, which is essentially what the Frugal Woods did right there, except that they carted their entire life up there for the most part and now live on a, a homestead, quote-unquote. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think that, uh, that I think the combination of, you know, getting away from it all and simplicity is something that does bind all these uh, little stories that we're seeing come out right here. And uh, I think it's a, I think it's one of the most significant driving forces behind the tiny house craze. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm not exactly sure how consciously cities like Boston are trying to tap into that with pushing things like tiny houses for affordable at affordable prices in backyards. But again, I, I don't think it's pure coincidence. And when a bill becomes law, he is responsible for putting that law into it. All right, Miles, thanks for joining us from the woods, wherever you are. Uh, where can people find more of your work? Uh, so my website, mileshoward.com, is probably the best portal to find uh, my latest articles. Uh, my, my most recent book, The Early Voters, which is about uh, millennials coming of age during the recession and how that shaped their political beliefs. And... Uh, uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Miles Per Howard, and I update it several times a day. <laughs> you know, 
I feel like every time I should talk about my Twitter, I should say it like that. Like I update it numerous times a day. <laughs> so I'm an, I'm an aspiring Twitter user. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, man, for better or worse, I guess. Yeah. So the dispatch is produced and hosted by me, James T. Green, with production assistance by Rob Dozer. Thank you, Rob, for getting us all connected. He gave us a little thumbs up out there. John Lago Martino composed our theme, and Miles is the wind beneath our podcast wings. <laughs> so remember, we only become a better podcast thanks to you. So let us know what you think. We're on Twitter at Outline Dispatch. And for subscribers, I'll see you tomorrow. And see you later, Miles. Hope everything goes well out there. <laughs> and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure.